Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Goods, a film podcast. This is Brian here. And this is Dan. Well, Dan, once again, we're here to discuss a film. <laughs> we're here in April, and I think movies are what listeners have come to expect. It is a film podcast, so maybe that's not a surprising, riveting opening. But the film I've brought to the table today... I thought was a fitting follow-up to our coverage of Luca last time. And this is for a whole variety of reasons. The film we're going to be talking about is called The 13th Year. It's a Disney Channel original movie that comes to us from 1999. So I trust you got a chance to check this one out. Yep. Found this one and watched it. It's a, a film to discuss on our film podcast here, as we do. All right, perfect. I think at this point we should just let a, an AI write a script for us and, <laughs> and, and maybe read it too, honestly. Yeah. Uh, but this is up on Disney+. Plus. One of the great things about that streaming service is they, they just bring to the table a bunch of old stuff in the Disney library. You know, regardless of quality, it's just... A lot, of, a lot of things you can access from the past. And so this film is directed by Dwayne Dunham. I think that's usually how you say the last name is Dunham, not uh, Dunham. But Dwayne is spelled interestingly. It's Duane. So that's why, it, you know, you see a name like that, you, you, you're tempted to say Duane Dunham. Yeah. I think it's just Dwayne Dunham. So... Uh one thing we've talked about in the past is that there's kind of a stable of directors for these DCOMs. Has this guy done any other ones of note? Duane? I'm going to pull him up now if you don't know off the top of your head. Oh, no. I, I remember that Paul Hone, we've covered his work before in Zombies 1 and 2 and Read It and Weep recently. Okay, so so this guy did Halloween Town. That's his, his big one. Oh, all right. Did he do any of the Halloween Town sequels, though? No. Okay. I've actually been to Halloween Town. Oh. I went there on one of the Gauntlet Halloween trips because it's the town of St. Helens, Oregon. It's really just this one big courthouse building that's like the town square of Halloween Town, but like 80% of the movie is just people in Halloween costumes milling around in front of this one building. So I don't know why that film inspired four sequels. Uh, <laughs> Halloween Town stands. I'm sorry. I I don't see what spawned the franchise. Another work by Dwayne Dunham is the, the DCOM Now You See It. Not to be confused with, what was the one we watched? Now, now You, you see, see Me. me. And yeah. now you see me too. Right. So apparently in 2005, there was a, a, a DCOM, now you see it. Okay. We might have to check that out at some point. Maybe that's the unofficial, now you see me three. <laughs> Despite coming before one or two. I can't speak to the content of that film to say whether that is a remotely sensible comment or not. <laughs> I mean, I, I think at its face, it's patently absurd. So <laughs> let's move on. 
But yes, I chose the 13th year as this week's film because it's part of a slate I had in mind for a decom month. This was ultimately not a theme month that came to fruition, but it's it's kind of my rogue entry. It's like the the movies I would have picked for decom month are this one as well as Read It and Weep, which of course we covered in our young adult novel adaptation month. Do you have enough decoms you still want to bring to the, the podcast that you would do a theme month down the line? There's not a ton. Uh, there's one with like a mummy that I think is called Under Wraps or something, right? Oh, that's the first DCOM. I was doing some, my decom research this week. That was the first official Disney Channel original movie, Under Wraps, and it was just remade last year. Oh, man. Well, obviously, we'd have to watch both of those then. Yeah. Uh, so certainly I've been curious about that one. Uh, I think the most like serious one that people give like literary credence to is the one The Color of Friendship, which is about like apartheid in South Africa. Mm, yeah, I, I read about that one. That's interesting. So I, I'd say that we might have to consider that one as well. There is one that we need to talk about at some point, and... I'm going to I'm going to pull up at some point. We we'll talk about it then. It's called Teen Beach Movie. Um <laughs> that I have some opinions on. Yeah, I mean it's all fair game. But I also like that we can sprinkle in yeah. decoms. You know, it works well as a a spice. <laughs> it's like there's so many of them. I'm sure you can find one to fit whatever theme happens to come up. Right. So maybe it's a little bit like sauerkraut. Like it's good to have, you know, a few times a year. But if you had sauerkraut every day for a month, you wouldn't be too fond of sauerkraut anymore. I hate sauerkraut. That's what I'm really trying to say. Oh, good pull. Weird Al, Albuquerque. Many a time I've listened to that track. Do you know the whole track? I could probably do the whole track, yeah. <laughs> certainly when I was like 11 years old, I could do the whole track. That... That would certainly be a way to uh, spin this episode even further off its trajectory than it currently is. <laughs> well, th you're not going to get my off-the-cuff rendition of Albuquerque, but um, maybe if we have like a The Goods 2, like a supplemental behind-the-scenes YouTube channel, that, that would be the place for something like that. But no, we do have a focus here. It's movies. It's film podcast. As noted. <laughs> this... <laughs> if we say it over and over, it's just going to be true. Manifest itself, yeah. That's that's right. Our vision board is that this is a film podcast and teamwork makes the dream work. So this, I think, was the first DCOM I ever saw. It's the earliest one we've watched, 1999. Yeah, and I think the lineup... I mean, Disney Channel was making movies for a while before they received this moniker, but I think... The DCOM label debuted in like '97. Is that accurate? I think it was earlier than that. Let me '95, maybe something like that. 1997. So you were right. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> you dare to question me <laughs> on my DCOM knowledge? Yeah. No. Okay. Yes. It's they started calling them DCOMs in '97. So this was a fairly early one. And then before that, they were called, I think, Disney Channel Premieres or something. Okay. 
So they had some movies that came out on Disney Channel, but they weren't called Disney Channel original movies until Under Wraps. I didn't see this one right when it came out. I think it must have been around 2001 or 2002. But what I remember is that I was staying at a hotel with my dad, and it happened to be on the TV. Until now, this is the only time I ever saw this movie. Uh, It certainly stuck with me, though. And I remember at one point in high school having a conversation about it with my friend who's a swimmer. He did that in high school and all throughout college, competitive swimming. And I happened to ask him, hey, did you ever see that Disney Channel original movie, The 13th Year? It's the one that's about cryptids, like hunting down mythical creatures. And he said, oh, yeah, I remember that movie. That's the swimming one. And he was right. It's both things. It's the cryptid decom and the swimming decom. I suppose so. It, it can't be the only cryptid one. I mean, maybe it is. I guess cryptid is... What is a cryptid? Can you tell me what a cryptid is, Brian? Okay, so a cryptid is a prominent species studied in the field of cryptozoology. Okay. And cryptozoology is... The label given to the study of animals that might not exist is what they say. So things like Bigfoot is the big star, followed by the Loch Ness Monster, but anything of that ilk. And they just kind of all get lumped together. But there's a fine line between a cryptid and like a monster. So like a mummy, for example, is not a cryptid, even though it's a monster. I think that's fair. Yeah, and like an alien would be right out, I think. Okay. It's like an Earth-dwelling creature that follows, for the most part, standard animal rules. Gotcha, okay. And let's see, was there something else you were about to say? Well, I was going to say, I feel like, despite saying I did some Disney Channel original movie research this past week, I'm not an expert on the topic, but I feel like a lot of them have hooks with some sort of mythical creature like i know there's a leprechaun one there's a mummy one there's zombies ones but i guess the distinction here is that like a cryptid is it's something you hunt for out in the wild something that you believe exists even though there's no evidence that it exists right yeah i think that's why this one sticks out to me is it's really about like a hunter on the fringe of society who believes in this thing and wants to make it wider known Whereas, say, in the Zombies franchise, the existence of zombies is never in doubt. Everybody knows that the zombies are out there. Okay. This is really the one where you get, like, the the guy poring over journals and things, Gravity Falls style. Right. And there's a lot of swimming, too, as we'll see. So, when this movie opens, it's presumably the late 80s in a seaside town that's going to be our setting. They may say the name of the town at some point, but it's not very important. But just know that it's on the water. That is crucial. In this opening scene, a mermaid is swimming along under the water carrying a baby. You know, it seems like the baby's able to breathe, so this must be a mer-baby, although it doesn't have any... Mer-features? fish appendages that we can see yeah she's just carrying uh, what looks like a human child this mermaid so the actress's name stephanie chantelle durelli 
I don't think she says a single word in the entire film. Oh, and I looked it up, and she has zero other film credits to her name. I thought she had a pretty striking presence. It's like she she does a good job just uh, enigmatically staring at the camera in kind of a regal pose. Right. Yeah. Her whole thing is like smizing. Is that what Tyra Banks does? It's like, speak with your eyes. Mm. You know, she, because, yeah, she never talks. It's just always like close ups of her reacting to things. And you have to parse it. Mona Lisa smile style. Something we're going to return to multiple times as we talk about this movie is I wish the mermaid talked. Kind of. Uh, Maybe there is power to her performance, but I have mermaid questions (laughs) that I think she would be best equipped to answer. And she she doesn't. She's not the loquacious type. As this mermaid is swimming along... She gets spotted by this redneck fisherman floating out in his boat. So he starts chasing after her. And as she's swimming away from him, she plops her baby down in like this net or this hammock. I I guess it's the net, but it's not down in the water. It's like up on the side of a boat in the harbor. And she puts the baby in there and then she swims off. When I first watched this movie back in the early 2000s, I thought it was pretty clear that this was like a move of desperation. That she was fleeing the fisherman who was after her. And that's why she decided to drop the baby. But this time around, it was much less clear to me what exactly is supposed to be our reading of this scene. My take on it was that this was a pre-planned deposit of the baby due to the danger of being in fishing waters. Okay, yeah, that's kind of the sense I got this time around because once she drops the baby off, she's almost like flirting with the fisherman. She's like, you know, giving him side eye and stuff. Like lingering, like she doesn't dart away after she does this. So it had me wondering, what is a typical mermaid life cycle in this world? And that's something that's going to get explored a little more. But it almost seems like they're like cuckoo birds or something. You know, they they drop their young off to be parasitically raised by somebody else. Could be. Yeah. Agreed. It's not clear. But the boat that the baby got deposited on belongs to a couple, the Griffins, and they decide to adopt the baby, and they name him Cody. The dad is Joey from Full House, Dave Coulier. But regrettably, we're never going to hear him utter any trademark Joey-isms. He never says, cut it out, or hut, cut, 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 cut. <laughs> That's true, yeah. He's one of the only people in this movie who seems to know what to do in front of a camera. (laughs) Or, like, at least attempt to be amusing. You know, he's not really given that much to do, but I still felt like he came off better, despite clearly not being Uncle Joey, than Mm. than most of the other actors here. Like, it it must have taken the Disney Channel a while to realize that your best bet for, like, finding a reliable well of people for these TV movies is find former sitcom actors who can't make a break in Hollywood, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, 
Dave Coulier did play several characters in the Muppet Babies cartoon. He hosted America's Funniest People, which was the, like, scripted sibling to America's Funniest Videos, which, of course, was hosted by co-star Bob Saget. So he he's out there, or he was, at least in the late 90s. He is the source, the the inspiration for the song You Ought to Know by Alanis Morissette about a real D-bag boyfriend. Really? Yeah. Did they date? Yeah. Wow. It's a small world. <laughs> but then, now that the baby is in human hands, we jump forward in time. And wouldn't you know it, it's a 13-year time jump. So, So here we are, now 13 years later. And we've got pubescent Cody. <laughs> so, well, <laughs> uh, I'm wondering about the cause of that chuckle, but I, I suspect I might know. Pubescent Cody is just an aesthetically humorous phrase. Yeah. So this uh, this adolescent kid, he's a star on his school swim team. He's got a girlfriend. He's described as the most popular kid in school. So, like... Already, he's doing way better than a lot of start-of-the-movie protagonists. Like, he's he's got a pretty perfect life, it seems. The source of his popularity seems to be largely derived from the fact that he is a boy named Cody in 1999. It's like, I don't know what else there is appealing about this guy. I guess he's on the swim team, too. That's the other thing. Yeah, he's the second fastest swimmer on the swim team. The middle school swim team. Wow. <laughs> So what I was wondering at this point and all throughout the subsequent movie is, do these kids seem 13? No. Maybe the definition has like changed in subsequent years. You know, people talk about like how kids from the 50s all look old. But even in the late 90s, I mean, they they seem older than that to me. And I looked it up. Apparently, the actor playing Cody whose name is Chez Starbuck, C-H-E-Z. He was uh, about 17. Yeah, it had a listed birthday of 1982. And then the, the girlfriend, Sam, played by Courtney Draper, it said she was born in uh, 85, which would have made her 14. Okay. Yeah, he, he did not seem 13 to me. He He seemed... Like a high schooler. It's kind of like in uh, Wishbone. When we watched Wishbone for the the Creepy Collars uh, Headless Horseman episode. The boy there was written as if he was like, you know, 12 or 13, but very much visibly not that age. And that that's the vibe I was getting here. Yeah, I was I was getting some of that. The movie I kept thinking of was Last Day of Summer. Because that's a middle school story where I definitely bought that they were middle schoolers. That's a good call, yeah. Say what you will about Jansen Panettiere, and we certainly have. He he definitely seemed 13. Brian, imagine that you are in the womb, and you're, you're birthed, and you come, you come out, you see a great light to, you know, your, your mom's there, your dad's there, a doctor's making sure you're safe, delivered well, and... The, the first words that you hear are, it's a boy. What's his name? Chez Starbuck. It's like, I feel like this guy was 
preordained to, to be a goober his whole life with the name Chez Starbuck. I just couldn't get over Chez Starbuck being his name. Do you follow Chez Starbuck on Instagram? Because I do. <laughs> did, okay, did you before this? No. <laughs> I had to look him up. He, okay. He's the owner of a store called The Shelf King, with which has franchise opportunities coming soon. He also says star of hashtag the 13th year. I didn't know that this was still a hashtag on social media, but perhaps it is. <laughs> yeah, I think this is officially pre-hashtag. But what I found in looking up Chez was that his birth name is Cesare Sarnella. Oh, that's way better name. He's like a true Italian fish boy a la Luca. So, is Starbuck his last name or was that made up? That's a, that's a Hollywood name, but that's a good mermaid name too, because of course they got the mermaid in their logo. Mmm. Chez Starbuck. Well, I would say it's a good name, but I kept thinking about, why is this guy named Chez Starbuck as I was watching the movie? It's just like every four minutes that thought would cross my mind. <laughs> So I don't know if it actually was a good choice for a Hollywood name. Oh, he hasn't acted in too many things since, as perhaps evidenced by his Instagram hashtags. He appeared in You're Invited to Mary-Kate and Ashley's School Dance Party, which was the last entry in the You're Invited to Mary-Kate and Ashley's series. And you better believe that I tried to find a copy of this streaming, and I could not. The VHSs are about $25 on eBay, which was just a little bit too rich for, for my uh, Chess Starbuck curiosity. Oh man, I might have to go on a hunt for that one. He, pl he plays a gentleman named Rick in, in that film. Not quite uh, Cody. I'm familiar, of course, with the first entry in that series because it was the source of the Gimme Pizza Slow meme which is they, they sing a song about all the things they're going to put on a pizza at a slumber party. And when it's slowed down, for some reason, it's really funny. <laughs> I, I would recommend that. It's from You're Invited to Mary-Kate and Ashley's Sleepover Party. I did find that VHS for about 50 cents at a Goodwill. And I, I bought it just because it was the source of that video. Very nice. It also features the forgotten Olsen, Trent Olsen. <laughs> I wonder when he's going to get a... Disney Plus series that will revive his career. Will he be another Marvel star? I I am hoping so. Maybe he'll be the, the super duper pooper franchise entry. <laughs> yeah, they're going to buy the IP for the It's Blank Time series. And it's going to make Trent Olsen a star as the apprentice of Harden Minor. Right, yeah. <laughs> but let's move on. So yeah, Cody's got this perfect life that's suddenly going to start falling apart because of the changes happening to his body. But one thing about his life that isn't perfect is he's failing biology. He's got a bad grade. And perhaps because of this, he gets paired on a project with the nerd in the class, a kid named Jess. And they start hanging out together, working on this project which is something that Cody's cool, popular friends are not on board with. They're like, oh man, this is going to ruin your cred, hanging out with the nerd. <laughs> and I'll say that 
This kid looks to me exactly like the nerd character in The Sandlot. But it's it's not the same actor. The the time doesn't line up. The Sandlot would have been 6 years before this, but very very similar appearance and performance to Squints Paladoros from The Sandlot. I completely agree. That thought crossed my mind as well. I just watched The Sandlot less than a couple months ago, which I referenced The Sandlot in our, our April Fool's Day episode. Yeah, I had it on the brain. And when I saw this movie the first time, that's what I thought. I thought it was the same actor, but it's not. But Cody and Jess strike a deal. Jess is going to tutor Cody in biology. And in exchange, Cody agrees to teach Jess to swim, which is something he currently can't do. A pivotal moment comes when Cody's parents throw him a 13th birthday party. Something we haven't said yet is that they live in a lighthouse for some reason. I I don't know exactly why, but I think this is a pretty cool set piece. Like, this is a real deal lighthouse that is actually functional, and that's what is a main location in our film. Yeah, and one thing I don't think you said that it's relevant for like exactly one scene and talk about stuff that I wanted to learn more about. This was up there. It's like it's referenced that the reason that the parents live near the water is they want to run this like kind of touristy on the boat restaurant type thing, like a tiki boat bar. Yeah. It's like a booze cruise thing. And it just, unless I'm forgetting something that's like completely irrelevant after 10 minutes into the movie. Like, oh, this is cool. I want to see the jo- Uncle Joey running a bar uh, on the boat and uh, he can't repair the engine. Oh, no, he burned the food. Like, that would have been fun to me, but we never get any of that after the, after the first few minutes. Unless there's something I'm forgetting. Yeah, this kind of made me feel like how you kept referring to cool Tim Robbins in Ember of, the, you know, the dad who's who's cool. It's like, I don't want to hear about the whiny teenager. I just want to vibe with the cool dad. Yeah. It's like, let's drink on this boat with Joey. Yeah, he's probably got some good stories. What's some funny stuff that Bob Saget told him? (laughs) Probably couldn't be repeated in a Disney Channel original movie. (laughs) Disney Channel. (laughs) Yeah. But at this party is when Cody first starts to notice certain changes happening to his body. I think the first thing that happens is the girlfriend pulls him aside and kisses him and there's this bolt of electricity between them like actual like a zap and one thing i kind of like about this movie is that it represents romance as electricity i think that's pretty memorable yeah the one thing that was weird is like the whole vibe between that couple always felt a little off to me there's always like an air of reluctance to everything they're doing and some of that is just the lack of chemistry and lack of acting chops I, and I also, I mean, we're going to talk a little bit more about kind of the the themes here. And I think that plays into it a little bit, <laughs> uh, whether intentionally or not. And I like as soon as it happens, she gets like a weird look on her face, like she smelled a fart or something. And and then he's like, oh, I forget exactly what he says, like, do it again. Or that was fun or something. And then she says, maybe next year, which like, if, I don't think you go a year between kissing. That's like a, a weird thing to say. So I I wasn't I was trying to determine whether that was supposed to be like a successful spark or a awkward, not good scenario. 
And I, I'm not sure the movie actually knew the answer to that question one way or the other. Huh. That's a fair question. So maybe it's like a premature electrocution thing. <laughs> yeah, something like that. But definitely it's something that I remembered from the, the first time I saw the film. And yeah, this is going to be one big puberty metaphor. As we discussed a little bit in our Luca episode last time, this is, you know, a non-negligible subgenre. It's films where puberty is likened to turning into some kind of monster, some kind of creature. So in Turning Red, the new film, you got the girl turning into the, the red panda thing. Uh, of course, there's a classic Teen Wolf. What I was thinking about today before we recorded here is the Tracy Morgan novelty single werewolf bar mitzvah. <laughs> yeah. Where you have boys becoming men and men becoming wolves. Yeah. Well, uh, it's presented as some big mystery, but of course we already know that Cody got deposited by a mermaid on a boat dock. So what could he possibly be turning into? Hmm. I wonder there's no tension around it. You know exactly what it's going to be. Right. So it's uh, men becoming myrrh here. But uh, as the movie goes along, Cody's spending more time with Jess, I guess, working on this project. Of course, he's also a swimmer, so he's in the water a lot. And he starts noticing additional changes. So he's got this electricity thing going on. But he also starts getting scales. And it, the first place he gets them is on the palms of his hands. Which, I, I don't know about you, but I was thinking about, like, the, the wives' tale about, you know, masturbating gives you hairy palms. Oh, no, that's good. I didn't think of that, but I like that. What I was thinking is, mermaids don't have scaly hands. Mermaids are human from the, the waist up. Why is, like, three quarters more than that? It's not until, like, the last scene... That any of his symptoms are below the waist, if you will. It's like all kisses and hands and stuff. And I was like, that's not very mermaidy. Yeah, it's a weird mermaid physiognomy in this film because uh, as we get to the climax, like one of the most visible things that happens to him is he gets these wrist fins, like uh, Zora Link in Majora's Mask, like when he's in peak athletic slicing through the water these fins grow out of his his wrists and and yeah it's like where's the tail dude mm -hmm. that's what we're expecting but uh as we come to learn mermaids have quirks of their biology in this in this world oh another thing that happens is he gets really super thirsty he's just constantly pounding back water which i guess makes sense like if you need water to breathe that you would want water but like ingesting it is would not be the main way that you would breathe, of course. And I, like, do mermaids drink a lot of water? I don't know. Maybe it's just like a a reference to the natural appeal of water to one of that that genetic makeup. Mm -hmm. But I was also thinking about like if you know if you're a caterpillar and you got to make a cocoon, maybe you eat a bunch of stuff to like store up the energy to be able to undergo that and like do the hibernation you got to do, like the water version of it. Yeah, yeah, it's like some transformation is about to happen, so you got to store up your resources. Although, of course, water is not especially calorie rich. So I mean, it's the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> 
So Cody and Jess are spending time together in the tide pools, getting ready for this assignment that I, I don't know if we ever actually learned what it is they're supposed to be reporting on. I, I, I guess the tide pools, but they're talking and Cody starts opening up about his symptoms that he's having. They form this friendship. And I think what you were kind of getting at is, especially in the aftermath of our Luca discussion last time, I was wondering which of these movies gets gayer. <laughs> Do you have a verdict on that? They're both pretty gay. So I think Luca is textually more gay. Like, it leans into it. But to me, this movie felt gayer. Like, I imagined myself in the position of being a young man who feels like his life is on track. And all of a sudden, I'm in the late 90s when people don't quite fully get gay yet. It's like, that's not really a fully accepted thing. And you start having this transformation in the way that you feel about the world around you. And you realize that, hey, there's the thing that's fundamentally different about me than everyone else. And I feel kind of trapped about that. And there's only my one buddy who I'm super close with that I can share that with. I, I feel like emotionally this movie is gayer than Luca. Like it, 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 the metaphor was not quite as on the nose, but it, it carried over a little bit more throughout the film. Lots of stuff like just this vision of him, like having seen some perfect form of himself and it's like a effeminate or like not very masculine image of course we ultimately learn that it's his mom but like he has these dream sequences but just like this this ongoing thing of of him like trying to discover this this truth about himself at least from the self-discovery angle felt deeper than than in luca I, but i don't know um definitely that metaphor became more and more prominent to me as the movie was going on. What, what did you think of this? Yeah, it's something I picked up on more this time than the first go around so long ago. It had me thinking a little of in Zoolander, there's a commercial or something where Ben Stiller plays a mer person and his coal miner father takes issue with that. He's like, you're playing a goddamn mermaid. <laughs> and Ben Stiller says, merman dad <laughs> merman i've never actually seen zoolander but that sounds pretty funny and yeah the, the whole movie just like it constantly makes jokes about mermaid you mean no i'm a merman and just like this whole kind of ambiguity of the his masculinity as an implication of this condition that he has to me felt very much like 1999 trying to reckon with a teen discovering his gayness mm-hmm we come to learn that Jess, the nerd boy, is the son of Big John, the redneck fisherman from the start of the movie. And apparently over the last 13 years, Big John has thought of nothing other than managing to capture evidence of mermaids existence. I got a lot of thoughts on Big John and few of them are positive. <laughs> I mean, he's a, yeah. It's like, at best, he's a schlubby guy, a single father who just sits around on his boat. Uh, and I, I think you could have worse readings of him, too. He just seems real horny for the mermaid. Like, he's not actually interested in hunting down a mermaid, but he's just, like, I don't know, obsessed with this beautiful face he saw out there. 
real weird vibes. The one Big John scene I liked, there's there's one scene of this, and I would have been happy if there were ten of them, is when he's getting off his boat, these other fishermen heckle him for believing in mermaids. And it was like, it made me think a little bit of Recess Schools Out, which is a movie we should talk about sometime, where there's cops in that movie who get reports of these implausible things happening that are actually happening in the movie, but the cops don't know that. And they're like mocking the people who are coming in and reporting them, just like really heckling them about it. And I love the way that these these other fishermen were making fun of him. And, and I wanted more people making fun of Big John for believing in mermaids. That would have made me made me laugh. <laughs> but Big John has got this whole warehouse full of nautical salvage, which I think is cool. I I like that idea of having like this antique store type place where you just got all this stuff that you dredged out of the ocean and you're trying to sell yeah but probably a lot of it just sits around so you have this cool space full of like old diving gear and and all kinds of you know glass floats and things like that and then of course supplemented with his mermaid library of like all these merperson conspiracy theory notebooks so as Jess is studying Cody's condition, all the symptoms that he's going through, and also delving through the books that Big John has accumulated, he piece by piece puts together the theory that Cody must be a merman. This would be a better reveal if we didn't already know that from the opening scene, but of course we do. Maybe that should have been a flashback like later in the movie or like uh, a vision. So we already have some dream visions. Maybe it should have just become more and more clear as the movie went, you know, like not seeing the whole thing up front. I wonder if that would have worked better. Yeah, that's another thing that's going on is as Cody's feeling like the call of the sea, he's having these dreams where he's encountering the mermaid from the start, his mom. One thing from this stretch of movie that kind of bothered me is he's also like sort of hiding his symptoms from his parents, but also like telling his parents about the symptoms. And I felt like every other scene there was a change in the dynamics between him and his parents. Like sometimes they were worried and he wasn't. Sometimes he was worried and they weren't. And also his mom is like a raging anti-vaxxer too, which I found actually kind of funny. It's like, I want to know more about the crazy adults in this world and less about the boring teens. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah, we don't really get an explanation for why she hates doctors, but she does. Yeah, it does go back and forth a lot. Like, there's a scene where they bring in a doctor, and the doctor just says, oh, all these things you're going through are the signs of puberty. But the, the point at which the parents are fully on board that something's going on is Cody starts climbing walls like Spider-Man. And I don't know what fish gives him this power. <laughs> because we get a sense of what species the different powers are coming from. So, okay, he's got electricity going on. So that's like, oh, electric eels have that. And of course he's got scales and fins like just about any fish, but then now he's, now he's sticking to things like a gecko or a, I don't know, maybe he's like a mucus laden hagfish or something, but he can stick to walls, at least in this one scene. And the parents come in and he's like on the ceiling. Yeah. Maybe he's a placostomus. Those uh, sucker fish that, that stick to the side of the fish tank. It really is like the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man, though. Like the way that he just kind of awkwardly dangles on the, the ceiling with his fingertips there. Maybe they got it from this movie. 
Maybe Sam Raimi saw the 13th year and just said, yes, there it is. <laughs> Chez Starbuck, you genius. Something that comes up in one of Big John's mermaid books is the revelation that, wouldn't you know it, after 13 years, well, mermaids can come up on the surface uh, as children and live in human guise until the onset of adolescence. And then I guess their fish traits come out and they got to go back to the sea. So this is key. This is something we, we didn't know that, of course, is what we're finding out as the movie goes along. What I wondered, though, is does this happen to every mer person? It's like the equivalent of pubes or something. It's like your your tail sprouts. Right. Is, so are they all living their lives this way? Does every mer person get dumped up on the beach or on a boat as a baby? Because if you don't have your tail prior to... I mean, maybe like if you live in the sea the whole time, it sprouts earlier or something. I don't know. But if you're just like a, a nine-year-old dingus, you know, scrambling in the water trying to be a mermaid, that would be a hard life. Like the baby on the Nirvana cover. Right, yeah. And it kind of kind of suggests like like in Luca that there are these people who, who might be mermaids, in that case sea monsters, that we don't actually know about. But I guess in this case it would all be kids. Yeah, so the conclusion that I come to is it must be something like that, that it's this species of kind of similar to cuckoo birds where they dump their offspring in the nest of another species and rely on them to be raised that way until they're adults and then the cycle repeats. It's like a, a parasitic child rearing. But if that was the case, it seems like they would have been found out before now. It, that this whole thing would just be happening all over the place. Any any seaside town. This one mermaid did not do a good job of telling Cody, communicating with Cody prior to the transformation. It's like this exact dilemma you feel like would happen over and over, right? And maybe that's why there's people out there hunting, hunting mermaids. Yeah. But by this point, several people know that Cody is fishing. He's coming into his own as a merman. Especially they've found out that if he spends time in the water, it's more pronounced. The scales come on in cover a bigger area of his body. And so they advise him to stay out of the water. But the state championships of swimming are coming up. So what he ultimately does is he sneaks out to go to this tournament and he shatters every record. The wrist fins come out and like as he jumps out of the water at the end and is cheering, everybody sees that he's got fins sticking out of his arms now. Like what's the stuff that Harry Potter takes for the Triwizard Cup? Oh, gillyweed, yeah. Yeah, it's like that. So, obviously, he's enhanced his performance somehow. So, we have this, like, couple-scene nemesis character who, up to this point, has been the faster swimmer. And he confronts Cody about this. But, I don't know, I feel like this kid never comes into his own as a villain proper. I was never intimidated by, I think his name is Sean. Yeah. He's also on the same team. I mean, I know that they're like rivals on the same team, you know, because swimming is hypothetically an individual sport. But like when your buddies, I don't know, I'm thinking of the Olympics. When one of them gets gold medal, even if you got silver medal, you're happy for your friend who got gold medal. You know, you're not like cutting each other down. I mean, maybe 13 year olds are that petty. 
But something felt off about that. I will say the one thing I liked about this character is if you buy into the metaphor that discovering your mermandedness is discovering your inner gayness, then it works to have like this jock who belittles you for for that, like the the bigot, you know, who's going to try to push you around a little bit. And I like that there was a jackass he was dealing with, even if it was only a couple scenes. Yeah. Where in the rule book does it say that a merman can't win the gold medal? <laughs> so, yeah, we've had our athletic climax here. Uh, so now it's time for the transformation to take place full force. Cody gets back home. And finally, we're to the point where we're starting to see a tail because his feet turn into these gross gray flippers. It, it's like shark color. It's like not what I would expect a mermaid tail to be colored like. But they're separate at first. Uh, and for most of, of this, this part of the film, he's just got these gray flippers on. He, he like staggers out to the beach. Everybody's going to follow him out to the beach as we wind toward the finale. But he gets there first, and before he can make it to the water like a baby sea turtle, he gets scooped up by Big John. Big John just, like, grabs him in a sack. <laughs> it turns out Big John's plan is to use him as bait to catch the mom mermaid. So maybe there's something to Dan's theory, that it's just all about horniness for this one particular mermaid all along. Because if you've captured the kid who's turning into the creature like that's enough proof for you right there just put him on the news well and another weird thing about big john is the moment that really put me off and like if i was a parent and observing this from the side i would be kind of freaked out so he's on the scent of cody being a merman and so what does he do he goes to the swim meet and brings his binoculars which is just you know lots of 13 year olds and speedos and, and swimsuits it's not a good look, Big John. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think he even says something like, your friend Cody has really improved his performance. <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, right? He does. <laughs> That's not too far off. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not hiring him as a babysitter, I can tell you that. Uh, so, yeah, now he's like trawling his boat with with Cody out behind or maybe he's up on the dock or something and the and the mermaid is giving chase. He eventually succeeds, actually, in getting the mermaid into a net. But Jess isn't having it. The the nerd kid dives off the side of the boat with a serrated diver's knife and hacks the net apart. Because remember, Jess couldn't swim before Cody taught him to swim. So here's the big payoff for that. But the slash net starts sinking, and it drags Jess down with it. So, wow, you d didn't plan for that. See, uh, that's funny, because I read that as a failure of the payoff on the ability to swim. I mean, I guess he had to swim to get to Jess to cut the net, but then he couldn't escape. I mean, so you're say so I guess the idea here is that he could swim, and we know that, because he got to the net. But it was due to the net itself that he was pulled down because the way that I saw it, and maybe I just I didn't capture that detail, was that he just still couldn't swim. You failed Chez Starbuck. You failed Cody. You didn't teach him how to swim is what you had to do. No, there's a lot of things wrapped up in this moment. It's like the dad's quest 
blinded him to what was really important. You know, there's there's multiple payoffs in this in this scene. So it, it might be a little convoluted, but it's like the dad has to grapple with what's really important. You've got the the payoff of being taught to swim so that Jess can jump into the action here. But then, of course, now Jess is sinking to the bottom of the ocean. So Cody's got to save him. So so that's kind of its own payoff. So, yeah, Cody goes down in his increasingly merman form, scoops Jess up out of the net, brings him back to the surface. And, oh, no, he's not breathing. So we're going to have to do mouth to mouth. But, of course, this is the moment when Sam, the girlfriend, walks up. So we're not going to go all the way there because it's going to be Sam who does the mouth to mouth. Uh, You can't get too gay on the Disney Channel yet in 1999. Who knows what they would do now, but yeah. Well, ho- hold on on that thought, though. <laughs> pa- pause right there, because here's what I remember happening. He gets him out of the water. Like, hey, Sam, go do mouth to mouth on Jess. He goes and she gives him a few breaths of mouth to mouth. They're doing the CPR chest pump. And, and then Cody's like, no, stand aside. I know what I need to do. And he reaches in. And gives him like a shock to the heart with his because he's got the electric powers. And it's like a Wally spark, you know, which revives Wally from Eve. And that's the thing that brings him back to life. So to me, this was not turning away from the gayness. This was the gayest moment in the movie for me. That's true. He does. He does do the electric eel defibrillation. So, yeah, ultimately, that is what makes it work. It's not the feminine kiss that does it. It's the touch from the other man. Huh. Okay. No, you're you're right. That is the sequence of events, so perhaps. But I I couldn't see beyond that this kid who looks just like Squints from the Sandlot is doing the oh. you know, he could he couldn't <laughs> swim and he sinks and then the, the lifeguard saves him and, and has to do the mouth to mouth to revive him. Wendy Peppercorn. That's right. I think canonically they get married. Yeah, they have nine kids in the little uh, epilogue at the end. That's right. But maybe she ends up as as Jess's beard twenty years in the future. <laughs> maybe so. They've got their own tor tour boat. Uh, yeah, I want to know more about the businesses in this maritime community. Just what everybody's got going on. You got the one guy who's got the salvage shop and the person running the tiki tour boat. I want to know what else is there. I'll bet. Uh, it, you know, it's kind of like Bob's Burgers. He's got a small business on a a coastal resort town. So. I'm sure there's lots more of these mom and pop shops. So now everybody's down at the beach. You got uh, Jess and Cody and Sam, and, and then the parents arrive too. So Cody's family says goodbye to him. The The mermaid comes up to the shoreline. You know, this is the time to go. It's like the, the train station at the end of Luca almost. It's like he, he's got to go and live this other life. And so everybody's saying farewell. Big John even kind of comes around that what's important is family. It's not having this big mermaid expose. You know, he's he's thankful his son is rescued. And, and Cody takes to the water. What was weird to me is they make it sound like he's only going away for a little while. Like, he even says, I'll be back before school starts. But how does that work? I need to know more, Dan, about this mermaid biology. <laughs> Because it's it's not ever made apparent that they can go back and forth. 
It seems like once you're an adult person, you got the tail and that's it. Right. That's a good point. Yeah. I don't know. I was thrown off by a lot of things in these last few minutes. There's also like a really emotional goodbye embrace and like conversation with the mom character, which like you, that makes sense. You know, kids running off. He's going to be sad about his mom, except that the mom has been like the seventh most important character in the movie so far. So like devoting a really long exchange at the end between them. I didn't know what that was all about. I mean, I guess it's like a mirror to the fact that he's going to this other mother. Yeah, I, I think that's what it is, is we've had so much attention on the mermaid mom. But we, I guess, need to understand that it's going to be hard for the human mom, too. But you're right. She doesn't get a whole lot of screen time beyond to just say she's an anti-vaxxer. <laughs> and I also... I mean, maybe there was like one line about it or something. I didn't get the sense that they all agreed to not talk about it. It was just like, okay, well, I guess that's it. Goodbye. It's like, it just ends. And yeah, he, he swims off. And I agreed. I was like, well, I don't really know what just happened or what happens next. So, okay. <laughs> uh, good question. Yeah, it seems like they could humor Big John enough to just like all take a Polaroid together or something. Yeah. It's like, come on, the, the mermaid's right here. You know, 13 years of work. Just g give me 30 seconds. Yeah. But, um... Yeah, to me, it was the, the classic heartwarming cryptid movie ending, kind of like Harry and the Hendersons, where you got the villain who's bent on exposing the creature, but he kind of comes around. They've had this this bonding moment, and now everybody agrees that they're going to keep mum. And uh, really, the reason behind that is with any cryptid story, it's like if the creature gets exposed, it changes the status quo too much. The world is just fundamentally different after that happens, and so it can't happen. It's like every single episode of The X-Files. Mermaids are real! Whoa! It's on front page of Washington Post. Headline story on CNN. Mermaids are real! Yep. It would just be too different. There's no going back from that. No. Yeah. And uh, so Cody takes to the sea, swims off with the mom, and, and everybody waves goodbye. And, and yeah, maybe there's some ambivalence. Maybe there's some confusion. Uh, I saw this as kind of a reverse of the ending of Luca, because in that, of course, the, the sea boy, he's taking to land and he's going to go off to school. And so he bids farewell to the, the other mer people. He's not going to see him for a while. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. But I also think it's worth noting that the outcome is the same in that the transformation occurs and is accepted because he starts that movie under sea and gradually embraces humanity whereas here he starts i mean obviously after he's tossed into a boat he's then on land and the transformation is to go back to the sea so and still kind of embracing that that differentness in himself so even though it is the opposite outcome it kind of felt thematically in line with the luca ending for me right yeah it still works the same way and that's the 13th year from 1999 i want to point out that the title is a misnomer because on your 13th birthday you don't start your 13th year you've completed your 13th year you're starting your 14th year disney wow you're blowing my mind right now that's a good point um but also uh somebody pointed out how does he even know when his birthday is because he was adopted it's like the mermaid never talks so how do they know to throw the birthday party on the right day 
Well, that's another good point. I mean, I guess this is going to sound kind of cruel towards what the parents did, but like when we got our dog, when I was just a couple of years old, like we, we kind of estimated when he would have been born. And then we're like, all right, your birthday is X day. And then we just all accepted that the dog's birthday was that day. So probably the parents did a similar calculus. Maybe they brought him to the doctor. The doctor said, hey, he's about three months old. Well, I guess his birthday is three months ago then. That's what we're saying his birthday is going forward, you know? Yeah, you're probably right. But uh, tangent, uh, I have thoughts about in the Disney movie Tangled, how Rapunzel knows that her birthday is the day that the kingdom throws the big party for the missing princess. It's like... Oh, they send up 10,000 glowing lanterns on the birthday of the princess in memorial every year. Oh, wow. Well, that's also my birthday. But her kidnapper, Mother Gothel, could have told her any day of the year was her birthday. She didn't need to tell her her real birthday. Why, why did you do that, Mother Gothel? My theory on that one, which is another one I have encountered myself, is that Mother Gothel was not smart enough to realize that this would be a problem until it was too late to say, actually, your birthday is a different day. You know, I, my four-year-old knows her birthday. Like, once you're three or four, you know what your birthday is. And probably when Rapunzel was like five or six, Mother Gothel was like, oh, God damn it. Ten years from now, she's going to start figuring this shit out. Uh, I, I blew the pooch on this one. Or what's the phrase? I screwed the pooch on this one. <laughs> blew the pooch. That's a new one to me. <laughs> but, um, yeah. I mean, just this is, yeah, maybe a discussion for another day. But like if you're raising somebody in complete isolation, like you don't even have to teach them language or anything. Yeah. I just, it could be a whole dark thing. Uh, but yeah. Every day could be Tuesday. Yeah. Pick some other day. It's like you could completely define their world. Right. Yeah. Well, that's another movie. <laughs> this was the 13th year. And uh, what were some good things or, or not so good things about it, Dan? W what'd you like? So... There's a line that the dad gives. What are we supposed to do, Sharon? Just stand by and watch while he turns into a dolphin boy? And I was wondering if they wrote that line and somebody thought, hmm, Uncle Joey would be good at delivering this line. Or they cast Uncle Joey and said, we got to write some lines that would sound good of Uncle Joey delivering them. I want to know what the order was there. <laughs> but... Yeah, or, or like, did he get to improv at all? Or that's true. It could be an improv there. It makes some fish puns. Go make some some fish wordplay over there, and and that's what that's what came out. But it could be. So to me, the most interesting thing is like the whole parallel to being in the closet and discovering some truth about yourself that's different from what the societal norm is, and how that very much parallels. Ches Starbucks, Cody's Discovery. I just thought that was a, a pretty interesting, rich vein that the movie properly teased out as the film went along. Yeah, I agree. Uh, for me, it's all about the, the cryptid hunt. That, well, that's what caught my attention when I was like 10. Uh, I, I like anything where you got somebody with a, you know, a, a stitched together notebook of monster sightings. So, so that was the hook that caught me the first time around. It's not as prominent as I remembered. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. It's really about the puberty stuff. Like the cryptid aspect. I mean, I can see why like when you see that when you're 10, you might latch on to that. But that is really they did not spend a lot of time writing that and building that in. And frankly, it might have been more interesting if they had. 
I didn't see that as a major narrative thrust of the film. Like I know it kind of drives the conflict, but it's not the center of the conflict, you know? No, you're right. And like I said, I like this lighthouse set piece they've got. It's especially cool at night and like in these dream sequences where he's feeling called to the water. They do some neat stuff with it. Mm -hmm. And I just think it would be fun to live in a lighthouse. Yeah, I I agree. That was a cool house. I would want to live in that house. Another thing that I liked that I don't I guess it made me nostalgic or something is like when they showed him at the beginning as being this popular kid. It is like what I imagined being popular in high school would be like when I was nine and did not yet realize that I would not be popular in high school. It was like, ah, you're kissing girls, you're pot, you know, you have all these friends. Everybody just thinks you're cool and wants to do stuff with you. And your parents give you all this freedom and your life is just chill AF. That's what I thought high school was going to be like, and probably because of movies like this in part. But it, it kind of made me nostalgic for for my my youthful visions of what it meant to be popular. Yeah. I mean, the the life this kid has got at 13 would be a good life to have at like 18 or 22. It's just a good life. <laughs> yeah. M- mermaid mermaid bits not aside. How are they making enough money to afford that house? I, f- I mean, I guess they're making pretty good bank on this. Maybe they're charging like $100 a ticket on this tiki bar boat. Yeah. M- maybe it's like a work thing. Like they also have to be lighthouse keepers okay but they turn it into like a suburban house yeah i don't know uh obviously there's a rich territory for further exploration when do we get the disney plus expansion series of the 13th year the the 13th year the series i don't know yeah i (laughs) i i'm not gonna lie and say that i would i would be interested enough in that to watch that spin-off series Dan, I I think if it happened, you would watch it. You watched all the all the machetes or or whatever. That's true. If it existed, I would probably watch it due to my obsessive completionism when it comes to movies we watch on the goods. <laughs> Especially if there was the promise of learning more about, you know, did the mom date like a creepy doctor when she was younger, younger or something like that? It's like I don't know mm-hmm. what other mysterious creatures are around town. Okay, yeah, I'm talking myself into it. I would watch a spinoff series. yeah same um one other big good thing i thought was jess actually i thought this kid was funny he delivers his lines well he said something about like you're gonna end up in a tank on jerry springer (laughs) that was pretty good i liked him too i thought he was one of the more interesting characters he just had more going on with like how they defined him and you're right, the actor matched the part pretty well. He had he delivered the lines well, and he really felt like the character. Yeah, he felt authentic. He wasn't nearly as wooden as Chez Starbuck. <laughs> like, Cody just looks uncomfortable a lot of the time. And, and maybe you could, if you're being charitable, ascribe that to his body changing, his world coming apart. But he just didn't strike me as a very good actor. Oh, I mean, he's Jansen level. Uh, movie torpedoing for me he's a he's a charisma vacuum for me he's got a couple moments here or there but i i don't know where they they pulled this guy from and i don't think it was a good casting he he was not carrying the movie for me i'm, I'm sorry Chez. i'm still following you on instagram <laughs> will you send him the podbean link i will not <laughs> You got any other good things, not so good things, remarkable things you want to? 
I felt like we've already talked a lot about them. I just feel like there were a lot of plot threads or like ideas that kind of got tossed out there that for me didn't have the payoff that I was expecting. Like, oh, the parents run in the tiki bar, but then that never came up again. I felt like the teaching him to swim, I guess there was a payoff on that, but I, I missed it in that, that busy last scene. And him learning the, his biology homework ended up not really mattering. I mean, he, he got the A one time and then that was more or less discarded as well. It just wasn't a super tight script. Yeah. What's your go-to line? It, it uses another, could use another edit. Yeah, it could have used at least one edit. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe a few more. I thought it was ultimately to the movie's detriment that the mermaid doesn't talk. I mean, I mean, I guess that makes her ethereal and it's really about something beyond words that, she, that this, he's feeling this call to the ocean. Uh, but I just had questions for her. Right. It's like, t tell me how this works. Yeah. Cause it's weird. Cause they spent all this time like trying to figure out what's happening and why, and then they get to the source of it and then she doesn't say anything and we don't really learn anything. And then we move on, you know? Mm -hmm. But it's yeah, I mean, it's like obviously the mer people can learn human language because they spend thirteen years topside, and or or they can. We don't know if this is what normally happens, but it seems like it must be, because otherwise, how does it work? How does it work? <laughs> You're asking me. <laughs> you know Chet Starbuck. Get him on the phone. <laughs> I need to know. He lives in Texas now. He put occasionally posts memes about being a, a Texan at heart and all, all political and philosophical things therein. Oh, okay. Well, I think now's the time, Dan, that we've come to the crux of our podcast, where we determine, is it good? So you're our guest, Dan. I foisted this upon you. And can you tell us, is the 13th year a good movie. So is it good is our signature section where we each give the movie a rating on our eight point goodness scale, ranging from very not good, a one out of eight to our masterpiece rating tour day good, which is an eight out of eight. So Brian, we've now watched a lot of TV movies in the course of our coverage of films on the goods. And I've kind of discovered a, I don't know whether this happened subconsciously or, or whatever, but I, I've a sort of grading system for TV movies has kind of emerged. You know, your basic TV movie starts as a three, unless it's a musical, then it kind of bumps up to a four as you're kind of starting your baseline. And then given how interesting the premise is and how good the execution is, it can kind of waver up and down from there. And I think if you go look at what we've given different TV movies, that you would find that to be pretty consistent with the ratings that I've given. And when I had a number in my head for this, I had to check myself and say, is this in line? Is this appropriate? And then I kind of looked at the ratings I'd given, came to that conclusion and said, okay, this actually does kind of fit. And I, I'm going to say that this is a two, a not good movie. I'm going to give it a two out of eight on our, is it good scale? The reason is I, I don't hate the premise. I think it's kind of interesting. And, I actually really like the, the kind of metaphors about 
you know, whether you just want it to be that he's actually gay and realizing it, or just this sense that you don't belong in the, you know, typical culture, you know, that, that you've been growing up in. But to me, it's actually more interesting to think about than to watch because my main reaction was I was just really bored this whole movie. And I think one reason why is something that I hadn't I hadn't realized until you said it. But the fact that we know from the start that he's a merman and he's just going to gradually realize that and transform into that. There was no tension for me. I think that's a major piece of it. And then just the the actor was kind of a zero for me. There was some there were some uh, good cast members, but not all that many. And speaking of interesting castings, one thing that I forgot to mention thus far is this was Kristen Stewart's first ever film appearance. She is a little girl who is waiting impatiently at a water fountain early on when when uh, Cody is in the phase where he's drinking lots of water. But yeah, overall, I just I I kind of had to force myself to keep watching even as I didn't actively hate what I was watching. So I'm going to give it kind of a higher end two, but not quite a three. It's a, it's a not good for me, but you know, I don't know because I, I feel like I like DCOMs and, and what they bring to the table more than my ratings ultimately reflect it. But maybe I'm just in general fonder of the musical ones than the non-musical ones. So that's where I'm landing. Brian, what about you? Is the 13th year good? Yeah, your description of our standard ratings for TV movies, I think that's pretty solid and set at this point. So uh, this is probably not going to be too surprising. For me, this film lands at a 3 out of 8, which we've labeled not not good. So, you know, kind of okay. You're right that it drags. And what I noticed this time is that it's very repetitive. And there's like back and forth on how severe the symptoms are how he's feeling about them, how the parents are feeling about them. And so we we just kind of feel like we're treading water for a lot of the runtime. But the things I liked the first time I saw it, I still kind of like. Like the guy who's become obsessed with the quest and just is a, a weirdo. He was probably already a weirdo. <laughs> uh, and some of the some of the fish symptoms that are coming on, like the climbing walls and the, the electricity stuff is is memorable if nothing else so this is probably like a lowish three for me um i think honestly the premise of last day of summer had a little more going for it albeit that one had a more as you have said torpedoing performance from jansen panettiere for me he was a little more obnoxious although chez starbuck is no budding star sorry sorry chez uh, you got your moment in the sun. You got your hashtag. Hashtag the 13th year. And uh, yeah, so that's that's where I land. I, I've also found that if I bring a movie to the table, I, I tend to be a little more positive about it. And uh, that's that probably goes both ways. Uh, but I, I feel like I have to defend it a little bit. So three, three out of eight for me. Well, there you go. And so... Uh, there was another uh, casting coup that you mentioned, Dan. Who Who else was in this film? Was there another one? Well, you said that uh, the guy who played the swimming coach is also in The Departed, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. That's right. So, yeah, the guy who plays the... He plays this kind of intense intense coach. He's got, like, a real fierce air about him. So I actually expected him at the start to be a more interesting character than he ended up being. He ends up not doing much. 
because he's kind of in like one of the opening scenes and he, he leaves a, a powerful impression relative to some of the other actors. It's like, oh, he's going to be like an antagonizing force. But then he doesn't really. There's just like one scene where he's like, where is my star swimmer, my silver medal swimmer? But he he plays a cop in The Departed, which it's like when you see his intensity, you're like, OK, I could see you playing like a third string detective on The Departed uh, mm-hmm. 10 years later, you know, seven years later. Yeah. So I'm glad we got to talk about this one. Yes, it was fun. Been been in the back of my mind for a long time. What? Oh, wait a minute. Dan, what if you... Oh, wait. Ah, sorry. This is dumb. <laughs> I was going to say, you know, 1999 to 2022 is 13 years. <laughs> It's not. It's 23. It's 23. <laughs> God damn it, time. Why you got to pass like that? <laughs> I was about to blow my Carry the one. Yeah. Instead, I've just reminded how old I am. <laughs> oh, what a bummer. Passage of time. Ruining things for us. And with that, we bid you adieu, listeners. But first, what is our next considered film, Dan? Yeah, so... Uh, we're going to try to work on the logistics of getting our old pal Gargus out here. Gargus appeared to share the film Hedwig and the Angry Inch in the past. And I think it's looking like we are going to watch the film Alice, which is a Czech film, if I'm not mistaken. And you seem to recognize the name of the animator. I don't know anything about this film. It's from 1988. Yeah, for the moment, let's say Jan Swankmajer. Okay. Maybe somebody will actually know how to pronounce this name. What I know is that he makes some really out there, creepy, disturbing, surreal, experimental films. Uh, especially he does a lot of claymation. Interesting. Yeah, I don't, I don't know anything about this movie we're going to watch. I suspect there will be elements of surreality just based off of like when i googled the film some of the images i saw and it's an adaptation of alice in wonderland so that's fitting Uh, makes sense yeah okay but yeah if we can get the logistics to work that's what we'll be talking about and if we can't then you'll probably hear us talking about something else next week but uh thanks listeners and thank you brian i despite my two out of eight had a good time watching this and, and talking with you about it yeah, you got a new uh, Instagram page to follow, if nothing exactly, else. Exactly, yeah. So yeah, listeners, keep watching the feed, keep watching the shore, and who knows what you'll see. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Bye.